Welcome to the Future of Australia podcast, where your host, Derek Stewart, interviews the entrepreneurs and founders running the 100 fastest growing new businesses in Australia. On episode 48, I interview Claudio Del Deo, the co-founder and managing director of O2 Met Ocean. We discuss how he began scuba diving at 10 years old, became a commercial diver by 18, and did not go to university until he was 26. Why he moved from Italy to Australia, why Perth is his favourite place in the world. Why he broke his promise to himself to never run another business after a bad experience in Italy and tried once more in Perth. The half million dollar risky gamble he took to win his first big client as a boutique marine environmental consultancy, why it paid off and helped him grow from three to more than 35 employees in less than three years. If you're interested in specialist marine consulting, check out o2marine.com.au. That's O, the number two, M-A-R-I-N-E dot com dot A-U. So I'm here with uh, Claudio Del Deo the co-founder and managing director of O2 Met Ocean. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Derek. Thank you. Okay, so can you start by telling us what were you doing before you started O2 Met Ocean? What did you study? What type of uh, companies or roles were you doing? All right, let me start with, um, I always like to um, make sure uh, um, the audience um, can uh, forgive me for uh, my accent. So let, let, let me start with that. Um, I'm, uh, I'm Italian as a uh, heritage, um, Australian citizen last 10 years, proud, proud Australian citizen with an Italian heritage, but I'm not gonna get rid of my accent. So I'm sorry if uh, not totally understandable um, sometime. Uh, I came uh, in Australia from Italy in 2006, um, before that, um, graduated in marine science, uh, University of Rome, La Sapienza. Uh, but even before that, uh, I come from a background of as a commercial diver. Um, has been diving all my life since I was about ten. I grew up in a small island in the Mediterranean called Ischia, which is the size. Uh, Probably, I don't know if you're familiar with Rottenest Island offshore of Perth, but that's probably roughly the size. A little bit larger, but not much larger. Uh, so I grew up on the island, diving all my life. At the age of 18, uh, I went into commercial diving and offshore industry, uh, started diving as a saturation divers. And uh, age of 28, graduated University of Roman Marine Science because I was looking for a different career away from the commercial diving, which is a very warning sort of activity and can't do it for long. But the diving tricked me the interest in marine science. And that's why I became a marine scientist and graduated. Um, worked in Italy for a little bit for the National Center of Research, CNR. And then in 2006, moved to Australia. Um, and um, started working as a commercial diver and um, marine scientist in uh, 2000 and 
2008, uh, I had the opportunity to, 2007, 2008, I had the opportunity to collaborate with CSIRO uh, on a very interesting research in Ingaloo Reef, uh, Western Australia. I was helping with uh, coral survey and fish survey and lots of diving, beautiful place, uh, perfect, perfect uh, dream uh, job for a marine scientist. Uh, but it was sort of a more on a, a um, volunteer uh, basis and it was not like, was, wasn't paying much. So very soon I had to start looking for something that could pay the bills and um, um, started, as everyone does, you know, you start sending your CVs around, trying to talk to people. Um, at some point, I have to say, uh, I was um, very skeptical. Uh, my English wasn't that good. Um, I was very skeptical. I don't know if it's that good now, but at the time <laughs> it was even worse. And... Um, yeah, I was demoralized at some point because for months and months and months I was applying for jobs in the marine science industry. I couldn't find anything. So I was still working as a freelance in the diving industry to pay the bills. Uh, but then all of a sudden I had two interviews at the time. This was in uh, 2009. I had two interviews, one with a company uh, called GHT and one with a company called SKM. Uh, they two big engineering consulting. Uh, at the time, they were both working on a very big, uh, large uh, uh, marine infrastructure projects in WA. And um, within a matter of a week, I had two job offer. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I decided to go with uh, GHD and uh, started working with them for about four years, four and a half years. And that was my opportunity to start building uh, my career in uh, marine science consulting industry. Um, after GHD um, in 2013, uh, I moved to another company called Bully Barsons, another big engineering consulting company. And uh, I was working in there for about five years. Uh, and I guess um, I was working initially just as um, a GHD, initially just as a field guide. So the guy that goes on the field, jump in the water, take the picture of the corals, picture of the seagrass, scrap barnacles on the back of the boat to clean up the instruments. Um, and then slowly, slowly, Built, built my um, skills and moved up um, into project manager role. And um, when I was at Bully Barsons, I was uh, a leading uh, technical, technical lead, leading um, team uh, uh, on large projects. One of the largest projects I've managed was in Singapore, where we had the multi-million dollar water quality monitoring, very complex project. That probably was one of the breakthroughs for my career because I was exposed to a world-leading project in the marine science industry. I learned a lot and I, there also was an opportunity for me to, um, to 
have my um, have my be exposed a bit more to the industry. Yeah. So yeah, I think this is this is my background. And, and so if we go back to when you were ten years old. Like, because you're on a small island in the Mediterranean, did everyone die that was, like, you know, kicking a football in, in sort of Australia? Or were your parents uniquely kind of into the um, marine sort of hobbies and recreation, snorkeling, scuba? H- how did you first sort of, um, you know, put on a scuba suit at 10 years old and get into diving? Yeah. So, yeah, that's a good question. In uh, On the island, yeah, not everyone was diving. Was not as a kicking the footy ball uh, in Australia in the backyard. Uh, everyone was definitely fishing. Uh, fishing was a big thing. Everyone was on the water. Not many people were underwater. So the underwater thing only started worldwide, except for military purposes. But worldwide only started like in the 70s, 60, 70. So there was no such thing as a family with big uh, history of diving. Um, in my family, uh, yes, we had that, which started roughly in the 70s. My uncles, my father, they were all divers. And um, and uh, that was obviously uh, the lead for me, what, what got me into it. And so, and then you're about 18, you're sort of a commercial diver. So, so what does that involve? Is that underwater welding? Is that collecting samples? Is that a mixture of just different things that need to be done underwater in, in ports and marines and in various sort of places? Or, yeah. or what's sort of the day in the life of a commercial diver? Yeah, it's um, um, the welding always comes up when uh, when uh, when. Uh, People think a commercial divers. I don't know why, but the welding is one of those that always comes up. I I think probably because uh, it's um, uh, it's quite surprising having fire underwater. I think probably. so. I think it's sort of people yeah. almost think it's a joke. They don't know they if it's a real thing. Curious. Yeah. 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 But no, I uh, uh, welding. Uh, um, so. Welding is actually a very specific field of commercial diving industry, and uh, you don't just happen to to weld unless you are specialized in that particular field. I did a little bit of welding, just stitching around. I did use, let's say, I did use an underwater welder, uh, but wasn't really my main task. Initially, most of the work I've been exposed to was uh, ports, and that involved mainly uh, maintenance and installations of moorings, um, installation of jetty, uh, preparation for uh, breakwater construction. Um, so basically, you underwater, and uh, if you if you go on a construction site on land, and you look at what those guys do, basically it's what commercial diver does underwater. Okay. So putting real bar together, for example, preparing for a concrete um, slab, it happened exactly the same underwater. You put the real bar together, you tie them together, and then you pour concrete underwater. You have a long um, pipe coming down and you start pouring concrete. Obviously, underwater concrete goes everywhere. <laughs> when, you, when you come up, you look like a statue. <laughs> and you need to wash down very quickly because otherwise you, you are going to get rock solid. 
Yeah, so I think that's a good way of visualizing. So the underwater construction, basically, I suppose, is what you were doing. And, and so what prompted the, the move to uh, come to Australia? Again, were friends, family members in Australia? Was it a lack of opportunities in your sort of niche industry in Italy? How did you decide to, to sort of look further abroad from where you were and where you grew up? Well, initially, to be honest, it was only kite surfing. <laughs> I came in WA a couple of times before deciding to move in WA, and I was coming here just kite surfing. First time in 2007, I came here and I bought a $1,500 Toyota Tarago 1979. And um, as many backpackers, you know, set it up with uh, a bed at the back and stuck all my gear, all my kite surfing gear and traveling up and down the coast, um, just stopping at all those beautiful places and kite surf all day, surf in the afternoon, um, put a couple of uh, sausages on the grill at night and start again the day after. Um, then uh, I bumped, obviously doing that, I bumped into uh, people with my same background, Australians, and, uh, you know, you start talking and thinking about job opportunity. To be honest with you, the first time, the first time when I arrived here, I had no intention to stay. I was just traveling. Uh, only when I came the second time in 2007, 2008, Actually, the idea that WA could have been a place to, to stay started um, building in my mind and talking to people and looking at the opportunity around. But I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed the wildness of WA. And maybe because I, I grew up in a small island, um, that's something that made me feel home compared to big cities. Uh, in fact, I was I did my uni in Rome, but I was always um, suffering there. <laughs> I'm not a city person. I need space. I need to see the ocean. Um, and Perth is one of the only city uh, I've been I've seen traveling. I'm traveling a lot, you know. I, I spent time in the United States in the, on the East Coast and the West Coast, spent a lot of time in Egypt and um, around the Red Sea, uh, spent a lot of time in South America and Central America uh, with the com working as a commercial diver. Perth is one of the very uh, few, if not the only city I've seen that is a city, but at the same time you drive less than half an hour and you're completely in a pristine ocean environment with no one around. Uh, while any other city in the world, you have to travel hours or even sometimes catch a plane to, to find yourself, you know, in a, in a place like, you know, you can really be by yourself with the ocean and no one around. Yeah, I think it's actually the, the most isolated capital city in the world. So it's a capital city that's the, the, the next closest capital city is the furthest away of any, you know, major city in the world. So, yeah, it's definitely um, 
yeah. good parts of a, a city. You know, it's like a, a few million people, but not sort of like you said, also very spacious once you get out of the city. So, so you, you um, like I said, you initially struggled to find work when you were here, but but then once you, you kind of found two great roles at once, you worked at each for a couple of years. Um, you know, why did you decide to um, go out on your own and start your own business? Obviously, you're building a bit of a career, you're doing interesting projects in Singapore. Um, what made you want to, um, you know, start your own business? Had you ever done a business before? Was it something you'd been wanting to do for a long time? Talk me through the story of sort of starting uh, starting the business. Then what was it like in the, in the first year once you're actually running the business? Yeah, so uh, to answer one of your questions, yes, I had, I have done a business before. When I was in Italy, uh, I did. Uh, I had a uh, commercial and recreational diving business and uh, and and sailing charter uh, on the island, and I was running that for a little while. And I promised to myself after a while that I would never do my own business again. <laughs> so difficult, and most of the time I was very jealous of my own employees because. They could go home and just switch off. And, uh, and most of the time, they were actually paid more than me. <laughs> I was struggling to make any money, get smashed by the tax office, and, um, and you know, struggling to pay debts, struggling to pay the bills. So I promised to myself I would never do my own business again. But then, obviously, that changed. When, uh, when I started working in consulting, there are two things. Um, one is um, those big, very big company, uh, they have uh, a very uh, unique and specific um, culture and, uh, and way of managing this business, which is uh, it's that focus on high performance and, you know, it can be a very stressful environment. Even though I, in both cases, I was in very good teams, we didn't have that happening in team, uh, but, but you could feel that as a company. Uh, you know, this um, um, culture really based on uh, high performance of individual. Um, another thing was uh, that... I think for a non-English speaker slash English heritage person in those big company, uh, there is a little bit, it's a, let's be frank, it's a little bit harder for someone of no British heritage to, um, to do career in those big company. You can just go to a certain level and then start struggling. And in fact, if you look into it, 70 to 80% of the managers in those companies, they all have um, sort, of, sort of British heritage. So I thought I, told I couldn't go, I couldn't really perform in, uh, in, uh, in my full capacity. But I also wanted to have a, a work in, a, in an environment um, that focused less on individual uh, performance and, and have something that focus on team performance, on how we perform together rather than 
me performing better than you. Uh, I felt a lot like in those organizations, often it's all about how you perform compared to your mates. Um, while uh, I wanted, and as it was, uh, uh, as it was my dive shop at the time, it's more about how we perform more together, enjoy what we're doing all together. Let's have a laugh and, and, and perform at the same time. I was missing that. So um, this was the driver for me to start Automated Ocean. Okay. And then so, like you said, you, you've gone back on your, your earlier idea to not run a business, but obviously you thought new environment, you, you've had the experience of big corporate, you see a, a ceiling that you, is you know going to be frustrating if you can't break through. So you thought, I'll start my own thing. And and once you actually did that, what was the reality like? Was it you know easier or harder than in your previous business? Was it did the wins come quickly with clients and through your network, or was it a real sort of struggle the first of the six or twelve months? What was that first year like, both the good and the bad? Yeah, it was very scary. Um, but I have to say, I don't have to take all the merit. Um, my business partner, Chris, uh, which we worked together at GHD for several years before uh, this, Chris uh, started a little bit before me with another company called Automarine, which we are still partner. Uh, Automate Ocean and Automarine are affiliated company. So Chris already started with Automarine, and um, and uh, the idea was for me to join Chris in Automarine, but at the same time together uh, establishing Automate Ocean as a new company. Um, at the time was Chris um, uh, with um, another partner, Travis, in Automarine, was just the two of them. When I joined, uh, was the three of us, we established Automate Ocean. There was not much work out there um, and was scary. It was scary because uh, we didn't know we could pay our salaries and we could pay our bills. I also have to say some merit also goes to my wife because she accepted the full-time position. And actually, she's one of my competitors uh, working for a competing company. Uh, but, you know, um, having my wife, Sira, um, working full-time also was a little bit of peace of mind because all the finance responsibility was not only on my shoulders. Um, so I could sort of take the risk. But what happened is uh, that when I joined... Immediately, within uh, 12 months' time, we were literally flat out of work. And we went from three people to 35 people in five years, in three and a half years, actually. So we went from three to about eight very quickly. And then uh, from eight to what we are now, which is... 35 full-time people. So that sort of um, segues into the next question that, again, you, you had 70% growth last year, doing over a million dollars in revenue. What, what was the cause or, or the um, uh, how did you generate such that rapid growth to scale up a team that quickly? Was it one or two really big projects that came through? Was it, you know, a whole bunch of small projects? Was it getting clearer on, you know, what you do and who you do it for? What what sort of triggered and drove and generated that massive sort of growth that let you build up that big team under you? So there was, a, uh, there was the one project, and that's very important. 
It was the one project that makes you, that expose you to the industry. And then everyone else start going, ah, oh, those guys actually can do something. You do need that one project. Um, we had the one project which helped a lot for Automate Ocean, which was um, the development of, um, I don't know if I can disclose too much because the project is still ongoing, uh, but it's um, uh the development of a salt mine in the northwest uh, of Australia. And um, uh, they, as part of the project, they need to develop a uh, marine export facility. So we have been engaged by them to assist with the concept design, with design criteria, honestly, with the design criteria from a Metocean perspective. So, you know, all the... Um, um, marine environmental factors uh, that are important to consider in the design criteria of marine infrastructure, like waves and current. And uh, and what is going to happen is the cyclone is going to hit this location and all these things. Uh, the client, in that case, trusted us, trusted our capacity, capability to deliver. And that was breakthrough because, uh, you know, once you start delivering a project like that, all the other players start looking at you with a different eye. Um, so, so, so why did they trust you? Like you said, it's so important in, in a space like this to get that first big successful project. You guys are, you know, you've been in the industry as employees, you work together, you know, you, you're not a 20-year-old, but, but why did they trust a two- or three-person company with such a big project um, against, you know, going with a big, consultancy or, or a large sort of business? What stood out, do you think, that let you win that first really key project? I think was the, was um, giving the client confidence that we could do it, but we could do it in a different way than everyone else. Obviously, making the project for the client way more efficient. and obviously also efficient from an economical perspective. Mm -hmm. It's harder, obviously. You need to provide something that uh, uh, other uh, established company can't provide. That's the only way. You need to come up with something different with the differentiator. So, so for you, was it that like you and your business partner, you said we will be personally doing this and almost our future depends on us you know, knocking Correct. it out of the park versus some big consultancy. It's just a tiny project for them. They don't care. They've got billions of dollars. They're not going to. They're not going to live or die based on the success of one little project. I think you hit the point. You hit exactly the point. So our point to the client was: Look, you're going to big consulting companies. The expertise that they have is exactly the expertise that we have because they will be using people like us. We have been working in those companies for the last ten years. So you will have the equivalent of us working there. The difference is that in this case, you have the directors of the company working directly for you. And we care about it because it's our houses on the line here. You know, we invested in this company. If, uh, if we don't deliver your project, we're really putting our houses on the line, literally. Because uh, we did massive investments. We had to buy equipment. We had to buy uh boats in order to deliver this project we had to invest about half a million dollar of our own money 
Yeah. And so how did you balance that decision? Because like you said, obviously, in hindsight, it, it made the whole company. But I'm sure part of you thought, well, should we start with something smaller? You know, is there a non $500,000 upfront investment client who can sort of cover our expenses for six months without us risking the house, um, literally? Or did you just think we have to back ourselves if we don't do this, like, you know, we're just going to be doing tiny projects or um, in, inconsequential work for five years? And, and so... Was there any doubt in your mind or points where you thought, no, this is too much, we're not ready, which, you know, again, a lot of people struggle with when the, the golden goose sort of comes along, they're not, you know, they, they back themselves, they talk themselves out of it, even if the client wants it, or we just all in and you said, no, we'll, we'll do whatever it takes? I think that's what we did. We did the all in and it was a little bit of a risk-taking decision. Um, I always... Um, I always... Uh, um, look at myself as a little bit of a risk taker um, and um, I, uh, we laugh because Chris is the same and we go like, you know, we are two, two, two risk takers in the same <laughs> company, it's a bit too much. Uh, but yeah, we just, to be honest, we just took the risk. We, we, we throw the hat in the ring. And so, like you said, obviously it's a you know business making sort of client. And then what happened? I imagine it's quite a niche sort of industry. It's not like you know general management consulting where there's a thousand different people doing it. Um, so, so was it just other types of companies who do these types of projects heard about you, or is it you use them as a reference client, or did the same sort of people managing that give you additional projects? How did you after that project was done, paid for, delivered, successful? How did you then? get that sort of um, ongoing work or repeat work after you had that first big success? Immediately, we started having uh, um, other clients approaching us for small projects um, and, um, you know, a number of small projects, basically, uh, they, they make the same revenue and volume as a big project. Uh, so initially was, uh, yeah, we were approached, obviously, by... Um, government and private on, on uh, asking us to deliver a number of small projects within the order of, you know, the $30,000, $50,000, dollars projects. And then uh, after that, we had uh, a few more uh, shot of big projects. And, um, um, yeah, I guess... Um, it was a uh, rolling over. It's a sort of a snowballing effect for us. Yeah, yeah. So one generates the next and leads to you know the next. Um, and, and so you mentioned obviously scaling up the team quickly from a handful of you to you know dozens of you. What was that process like? You had employees before back in Italy, um, but you know different type of work, different type of business. Um, you know very high stakes projects. What was that like, hiring the right people? Because, again, it's not, I imagine, a super common skill set. It's fairly specialised, all, all your staff. Um, so what was that like, recruiting, hiring, managing those people? Um, it's one thing when you and your business partner, I imagine, delivering projects, but then when you're the one, you know, selling the project, winning the bid, and then you've got to build a team to deliver it. What was that experience like over the last couple of years, building out that team? It was very challenging, uh, especially adjusting your mindset where you're not just anymore two or three people. Um, everything changed when you start having a big team. Everything changed the way that you do business, the way that you run your day by day. 
it needs to be different. And it took us a little while to understand that. Uh, the procurement and the hiring process initially was easy because we obviously could hire all the good people that we have been working in the past. And we knew that we get along with them. We knew they were good people. We knew they were in line with our culture and our view. So basically, we ended up hiring all our friends from previous, previous work. Uh, I wouldn't use the word poaching them. We've never been approaching. Uh, but, you know, when, uh, when you've been working with people and you're still in touch, you just leave the doors open and say, look, if any time, knock our door and uh, we will be there. And, and that happened at some point. Um, colleagues, which we also consider friends, have been start knocking our doors and we've been more than, help, more than happy to take them on. Uh, after you um, have um, exhausted the pool of, uh, of people that you know and you've been working with, that's where the real challenge starts. Because I, as you said, it's a very niche market, highly specialized, and uh, there is not many people. So after that, I think we started doing as everyone else, just uh, using university. We have been uh, you know, approaching uni, and that's very good to hire graduate level and junior level uh, professionals. Um, we did establish uh, um, internship programs uh, with um, uh, Edith Cohen University, uh, and that helped us to transit from um, an internship to a graduate program to now a few of our uh, intermediate consultant uh, employees um, is still with us. They started doing an internship when they were at last year of uni. Then we offered them a position as a graduate. They went through the three years of graduate program and they now are, um, uh, you know, we're still working with us. Yeah, and you mentioned some of the hardest thing. Like I said, you had a network. It's you know you had partnerships with the university. The hardest part was adapting yourself, I guess, changing and growing from being a, a owner operator to having a team. What were some of those changes? Was it delegating work? Was it you know how you sort of spend your time? Like you said, kind of winning work versus doing work. What were some of those personal transformations you had to go through as a as a um, you know leader as your team expanded? Communication and delegation. You can't expect, you can't keep everything in your mind as you do when it's a couple of people, you know, because you assume that everyone else is on the same page and everyone else knows what's happening. This is true when it's two or three people. But when you start having 20, 30 people, then uh, you need to clearly communicate what's going on and um, delegate, clearly delegate and trust that once you delegate, you need to trust and stop micromanaging. That's that's the challenge that we we faced, and that's not easy. Um, it's been not easy. Uh, we also engaged with a, a team of professional uh, behavioral scientists uh, called the Corporate Shepherds. I don't know if I can uh, publicize them, they're very good. Just uh, I would really recommend them. So. 
uh, what they do, they help you in that process. They help you in um, uh, building the culture of the company, the strategy of the company. That has been uh, very uh, revealing for us because, um, uh, you know, you, no one teaches you how you're going to do your own company. Uh, you're gonna be it's, it's not something you learn at uni or you learn you you just um yeah you just especially as marine scientists we didn't mm. study any of that <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't study people management or mm. finance or any of this stuff um so it was yes uh, it was very important to come to the realization that we needed help that was a big step seeking help recognizing that we may not be that good in this. We may good marine scientists, good technical people, we're good <laughs> in writing a report or jumping in water and recognize a, a coral from a sponge. Um, <laughs> but that's completely different from building a company. So we recognize we probably need help because we're not good at this. And was there a moment that triggered that recognition? Did you have a key staff member leave? Did you have... You know, people, were, were you just getting frustrated? Well, like you said, people, you're expecting people to read your mind, forgetting that, you know, they're two layers removed from what's going on. Or was there something that triggered that realisation and um, acceptance that we need to bring in external experts who can sort of guide us through this, you know, culture, strategy, evolution? Yes. Well, we, we realised, I realised that we were going to lose control and we could see the frustration in people. Uh we never had someone leaving us to go in other companies, uh, which we're proud of, which, which means we're going in the right direction, we're building the right culture. But I, we became to the realization that that was going to be happened if we were not doing something about it. And also to the realization that we may, were not able to deliver to our clients if we were keep on going, because now we don't have just one project to focus on. We have many, and we can't run it as two people business anymore. Um, so we came to the realization that two things could happen if we were not doing it. One was uh, start not delivering to our client, that would lose the trust of our client and lose the trust of the industry, and start losing our people. Yeah, and I think that's a really good recognition and that's something that all sort of new business, especially when you're growing quickly, you've got to adapt a lot faster, whereas if it took you 15 years to get 30 people, it'd be a lot more of a gradual sort of change. So, so if we step back a bit from the business and even from your industry, um, you know, you've run businesses in different countries, obviously you interact with a lot of different people. Well, what trends do you see in entrepreneurship in Australia? What do you think a lot of Australian entrepreneurs are doing well? Um, and then where are areas maybe where we're sort of lagging behind other companies in new business and growth and um, execution and things like that? All right. Um, I think Australia, <laughs> I mean, I'm, as a person who runs a business in Italy, I can already tell you that we are extremely lucky in Australia. Um, if Entrepreneurs over here and uh, business owners over here complain about the complexity of, um, of the system and the bureaucracy. They should run a business in Italy for a couple of months. <laughs> so I guarantee you they will stop complaining about that. Um, 
I think I've been always, I feel like I've been supported and I, uh, I found everything very easily, you know, uh, very transparent. Um, and obviously the market helps. If the market is there, obviously everything is easier. Australia, to me, is, um, is uh, the country of opportunity, uh, has been the country of opportunity. Um, and it still is. It's a young country, plenty of opportunity. And I think if you put some hard work in it, it's very difficult to fail. And so when you mentioned, you know, the, the country and the government sort of helped, was that in terms of grants? Was that in terms of government was willing to give small businesses like yourself a go with their procurement? You know, they didn't just default to the biggest consultancies. Was it just, like you said, the transparency of the taxation and legal sort of system around yeah. business and contracts or, or what? Are some, some, having, like I said, operate in a uh, less friendly environment, what were some of those sort of benefits you think that are made more unique to Australia? I think more than the government helping, I think it's the system that helps. The system is set up easily enough to, 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 to travel, to, you know, to navigate through it. Um, I think, for example, of uh, a fair taxation system where you pay taxes only if you make money. Uh, it, it seems ridiculous, but in Italy, you pay taxes even if you don't make money. Because they put you in a bracket and they assume that you're going to make this much money this year, so you pay the tax up front. Like based on <laughs> revenue rather than profit? Is that sort of how it works? Based, based on forecast revenue. Oh, even wow. Worse. <laughs> even worse. <laughs> yeah, so this is ridiculous. And obviously came to that because uh, a, a lot of tax evasion, but the, the, it was a sort of a catch-22 because... People over there, they keep evading tax because otherwise they're not going to survive. And the government keeps on putting tax up because people are not paying taxes. <laughs> and then yeah. they came to the realization that people were not paying taxes anyway. And they said, okay, now we do it different. Uh, if you are a barbershop in this area, we assume that you earn $50,000 a year. No matter what you're telling us, we assume you must earn this much. So you pay tax on this. You know, so it actually would would punish the ones that are struggling the most. If you're above average success, you'd be paying less tax, and if you're below average success, you're paying more tax. If they assume like an average success of an average barbershop in an area, right? Yeah, correct. So I find myself in a situation when I was running my own business over there that I was literally paying taxes on money that I didn't have. It was very difficult. And, you know, that's one of the things. Uh, other things is like, you know, you send, you send, uh, you go to the, for example, to the local council or to the whatever, um, um, send an email to the taxation office. Uh, good luck in Italy. You, know, <laughs> you wait months, you have to go through so many red tapes. And I mean, there is some here, but it's not that bad that, that it's definitely it needs to be recognized. You know, I'm not saying, not trying to uh, say that the government is doing exceptional. I think the system has been built in a, in a decent way. Um, but also, uh, I think the government could do way more, especially in helping small business, small Australian-owned business. I don't think the government does enough in that space. Uh, small business like we are are constantly 
um, constantly facing massive struggle when we competing with big international competitors uh, to the point where often we are, you know, bullied around, I would say, by those big massive organizations. I think the government should be doing more in that space in understanding that um, small business that are competing against small Australian business that are competing against massive international beasts need to be uh, protected somehow. And do you think that maybe like would be in terms of, you know, like I think there's a quota for sort of small business procurement through the government. So they try and allocate maybe 25% of their suppliers in local, state, federal government to sort of smaller businesses where, you know, multinational maybe can undercut them or out-compete out them. Is that a sort of example where you think it would sort of help small business or maybe more generous tax policy when you're below a certain size to kind of help your cash flow and, and sort of growth, whereas, you know, big companies have access to finance and debt and, um, equity and things that a small business doesn't really have access to to, to fund growth or a- any particular areas you think that would be most beneficial? Yeah, I think the procurement one would be the important one. I'm not a believer in, uh, uh, you know, putting money into companies. A company needs to go with its own legs. Um, obviously, except emergency situation like, for example, COVID and the JobKeeper allowance, I think that was brilliant. Uh, but that that one is an emergency situation. In general, if a company needs government money to survive, that's something wrong. It's not working. Uh, but in the procurement system, I give you an example. Government keeps on talking about having local business and Australian-owned business. But we have been in a situation where we have been bidding for government organization. And we have been losing our bid because we couldn't provide a big enough liability, for example. You know, you're too small as a company, too much of a risk. A lot of small companies like us, uh, and I, I know that for sure because I've been speaking to other um, uh, uh, small business, small to medium enterprise owners in Australia, and they all facing the same, the same. When, uh, when, when you start bidding uh, with um, specific, some, some government organization or oil and gas organization, um, you could provide the best technical proposal at the best price, which happened to us several times. And we were told you have the best technical proposal, best price. However, you're not passing the due diligence on your financial liability because you're not rolling out $50 million a year. Uh, And that four, you are highlighted in our procurement system as high-risk business. So we better go with the big guy that we can sue if something goes wrong and pay more money rather than go with you. Because if we sue you, if something goes wrong, we can only go after your house. Basically, that's what they're telling you. Yeah, so, so it's sort of a, um, like you said, that they, they talk about helping small business, but then, like you said, the system is set up based on, like you said, liability, risk, other things, which if it's purely on size, not even on, you know, your margin or your, um, like a financial health check of your P&L and your balance sheet, it automatically excludes any sub-$50 million businesses because, you know, like 
they need that in order to tick a box in the threshold. Exactly, exactly. Uh, we have been in a situation where, you know, we invest a lot of money in proposals and we were not even told up front before going for the proposal. So you invest energy and money in proposals and then you realize that you never had a shot at it. Uh, so two things in procurement system. First of all, I think the government should ask everyone, government organization, oil and gas, mining, anyone, to do the due diligence before asking a company to put a proposal in. So don't waste people's time if they don't have the, the, the profile to win that project. That's yeah, one thing. I was just going to say as well, because I imagine for a smaller business, it's actually a lot more expensive, especially an opportunity cost for you to do a bid. Like a big, a big company would have an entire department. That their whole job is just responding to tenders and grants and you know bidding, a bid team, a contracts team. Whereas for you, I imagine it's your time and, and other senior people in your business who are taking time out to try and win business. And if you lose it, it's completely wasted. Whereas, like I said, a big company, they have a whole team that do nothing but that every day, right? Absolutely. Spot on. Spot on. You know, for us, it's the real money that we, we put into it, um, that go, uh, and they're not coming back. So, And when they go on something that you find out later that you never had a shot at it, then it's really frustrating. Not only frustrating, it can really put the old business in danger. Yeah, especially if, like, like you said, you waste so much time, and there's some upfront thing they could have told you, but they don't tell you until all, all the time is already wasted. So again, if we go back to the younger version of you, where you're 18 or 20, you're interested in diving, maybe something that, like you said, there's not um, necessarily like a long-term future. I imagine, like, because, like you said, it's very physically demanding. But you, you've got an interest. You're 18 or 20 years old. What, what advice would you sort of give yourself? You know, you grew up on a small island. You, you, you're, um, you know, you don't really know. You're interested a bit in business to run a business, but you're also sort of interested in study. What would you say to someone who's you know 18 to 21 years old now? Um, you know, who's a bit unsure of what to do next. They've got some hobbies, but they're interested in business, but they don't know sort of what to do or where to go. Oh, that's an hard one. <laughs> um, uh, or maybe what do you tell you know your interns and your grads you know they're 20 they're maybe they're yeah, in their early 20s what advice if they say I don't know what I want to do should I do this career should I do something else should I go back to uni um, should I change industries like what would you say to a 21 year old in your sort of program maybe I went, yeah I went back and forth uh, as I said I joined uni when I was already 26 basically well, I joined uni late and I think it was a good thing. Looking back, if I was joining uni when I was 18 or 19, I was never going to finish it because I didn't have the mindset. I wasn't interested. So I was probably going to waste time and money at uni. So it was a good thing that I went into professional career first into diving industry. And then at a later point, I decided to, to do uni. So what I always say is you need to really find that thing you are passionate about. I think every single successful business person in the world at some point was really passionate of what he was doing. Maybe that passion fanned out later, but at the beginning, if you think of any person that built a massive successful business like I'm thinking of Steve Jobs. I'm not I'm not obviously comparing <laughs> myself to Steve Jobs, but 
But, you know, you see the story of those people. They were so passionate in what they were doing. So you need to find something you're passionate about. That's very important. Mm. No, I think that's a good advice. A lot of people think they have to go straight into university or they're wasting time or, or losing time or behind everyone else. But for a lot of people, spending some time in the workforce, traveling, um, you know, meeting people, um, you know, doing things like that, then coming back to uni in their mid-20s is actually they're going to make a more informed decision versus even if they finish a degree when they're 18, 21, if it's a degree they don't want to work in, it almost is a waste anyway, even if they've sort of done it versus yeah, you know, spending a bit absolutely. more time. Look, I was the last in my class when I was one of the last in my class when I was a high school and I was one of the first in my class when I was a uni. And that's because there was that gap in the middle that allowed me to really understand what I want to do, where I want to be, what I'm interested in. And so going back to your company, um, what does the next sort of five or ten years look like? Hard to predict the future, obviously. A lot of things are constantly changing. but um, what's your sort of vision for, you know, the five or 10 years future from now, or long-term goals or, or things that you want to achieve, um, you know, in the future with your business? We, we want to build a business who is um, sustainable, um, where people enjoy to work. We want to be seen as... Um, specialized and go-to company for particularly mid-ocean and marine environment. Mm -hmm. uh, and we, we want to, we wanna, as I said, we want to grow sustainably. We not, we, our view is not, we don't want to become hundreds of people company. Uh, that's not our goal. Our goal is more to be um, a company where, you know, where people enjoy to work and clients enjoy to, to deal with. No, not, not, become, not become a millionaire, just <laughs> build, build the happiness. Yeah, and I'm sure having worked in big companies as well, like you said, you know some of the pros and cons. If someone's thinking of joining a big company, you know what that's like, but also working in your company and you can control the culture and the hiring and the projects. Um, like you said, you can um, you know shape a really great working environment knowing what the alternate work environments are like. Yeah, yeah, correct. Okay. That's, uh, that's where we want to be. Excellent. I think that's a great goal. And, and just to finish us off, do you have any final words or thoughts you'd like to leave the audience with? Um, oh, well, first of all, thanks for, uh, for listening. If, uh, if uh, you manage to listen to it all the way to the <laughs> end, despite my, despite my accent, um, if there are um, entrepreneurs out there who are struggling, all I can say is... Um, um, Hang into it, but also take take a step back and 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 see if you may need help. Uh, recognize your limits. Recognizing your your own limits are very is very important. You may be very good in one of the aspects of your profession, but not all of it. You may not a great people manager, but you a great technical person. So you need help with managing people. Or, or vice versa.
Yeah, I think that's a, it's a great uh, message to finish on. Thank you so much, Claudio, for coming on the podcast. No worries. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Future of Australia podcast. If you liked the episode, please subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. To learn more about the Future of Australia project, check out futureofaustralia.com. To reach out to Derek directly, you can email derek at futureofaustralia.com. That's D-E-R-E-K at futureofaustralia.com.